0: Dedicated to Henry Farman. In the years of the primal floor, from the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and thought, and man was the Lord of the earth. He made him an hollow skin from the heart of an early tree. He compassed the earth therein, and man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigorous steam. He harnessed the lightning for fire, he drove the celestial team, and man was the lord. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, this is Alan Averill, this is Agitators Anonymous and it is episode 18, who knew? Alright, off the top I should say that if you want to follow me on Instagram it is nemthianga underscore primordial and that if you do want to go to my Patreon it is patreon.com slash and I often post extra podcast demos other various things, bits and pieces there. Um, I realize that I hardly ever mention any of those things, actually. Or I mention them in the 52nd minute of the podcast. And the reality is that most of you don't get to the 52nd minute. So what has been happening in glorious nation of Frankenstein? I think... um, you know, this weekend they have left the tractor factory open for all employees and comrades and we have burned many tires and uh, we have thrown many of the village dogs uh, into the fire and so we have made a great, uh, great feast for all people. Me and Victor have some beers together and we talk about the new tractor technology arriving in the year 1953. I am available for, um, as I said, cartoon voices. This could be my new sector of employment. Some might say that I'm there already. Yes, I mean, look, come on. Have a sense of humor about all of this. But, you know, um, it did remind me of something while I was busy taking the piss out of Frankenstein. Trademark, by the way, you can't have that. That's mine. All right, let's strap ourselves in or strap yourself on, as the case may be, darlings. So what are we going to talk about this week? Well, I'm going to ramble through, I think, a couple of things that I've noticed happening in my city, happening in other cities as well, Um, seeing as this is the end of my career. This is the fat Elvis years of my Vegas residency. There's been some odd things afoot in the streets Definitely, even here, Ireland is not known for its street protests, at least not in my opinion. Well, that may historically, some people find, might find that surprising, but there's been some strange movements on the streets, uh, gathering of odd balls. But we have this now rather odd group of patriots, would we say? I don't want to confuse listeners in the United States because it is a complex thing to try and explain the difference between European nationalism and American patriotism. Many people in, I think, in the USA, many of the cultural, much of the cultural hegemony that we have inherited from the USA when it comes to, let's say, identity politics is designed in the US academic laboratory, let's say, intellectual laboratory, without any consideration of European history, or maybe the class system that has been evident in Europe for hundreds of years, and so when something becomes, when something crosses the Atlantic transom over here, it loses some of its meaning. I think, and um, so patriot and nationalist are different things in the USA, and Europe, in Ireland. Um, nationalism is left wing. The IRA were left-wing, fundamentally. I mean, the the rising in 1916 influenced the Bolsheviks. Um, Trade unions, the first trade union, in theory, um, was born in Ireland um, during the lockout. We have this rather odd mix of people starting to march through the streets in Dublin, waving Irish flags, having all the hallmarks of... Um, Irish patriotism and in fact they reminded me a little bit of you would have seen every now and again spontaneous small marches of Irish Republicans around Dublin and Cork and definitely in the north of Ireland in the late 1980s or the early 1990s and all of a sudden a bunch of guys would show up with sunglasses on military fatigues um, and carrying banners and having a sort of military-style affiliation. And, of course, there was always a ragtaggle bunch following them of mainly people in football jerseys, Celtic jerseys. Um, Anybody who knows anything about football knows what I'm talking about. But this is beginning to happen again on the streets, and it's such an odd mix. Across the road from me, um, well, near enough to where I live, is a a park, and I, I was observing a bunch of about... 40 or 50 of these people that I suppose the mainstream media is now calling COVID deniers which is a word loaded with a lot of um, heavy connotations to use words denial at the end of everything but far from that they were um, it's such a ragtaggle bunch of everybody waving flags about 5G to um, inferring that there is a a pedophile um, cover-up as part of our National Broadcasting System, um, RTE, which I suppose these are all tropes inherited from the USA. This whole uh, uh, really strange distilled mix of um, Epstein through through Q Anon through various other, I'm sure there was even some alien conspiracy in there as well, all dressed up and draped in the Irish flag, um, but I watched them march by, and there was some things, you know, that now five, six months into this, with no discernible line in the sand or no discernible end of this in sight, that you know, there's small kernels of truth, as is the case with most things now on the left on the right in the, in in conspiracy theory world, you know, Epstein had an island, right? So there's small kernels of truth in some of the things, but the whole. General process just seems like Mad Hatter's parade. And this is a really, really strange phenomenon that's now beginning to spring up in Dublin. And is it reflected across other cities in Europe? I mean, there was a huge protest at the lockdown measures in Berlin. Of course, there are fringe elements who are connecting it to 5G and other things like that. But... It does show that there is growing resentment at the measures, growing distrust at the machinations of the lockdown. And part of me resists the idea that this is all some Machiavellian plot and plan by the powers that be, because it strikes me that so much of this is chaotic and disorganized. In the beginning of this, whole lockdown period we were told that we needed to lock down to stop the overwhelming of the health services this hasn't happened and at least family members of mine working in hospitals are saying that hospitals are not even half full in fact they're losing money on vital surgeries and i just wonder what the end game here is because without a vaccine not having any cases like actually moving this to zero is not going to happen that's that doesn't seem to be a really realistic option while it is still in the, in the air, so to say. So what is the end goal when it appears that the world economy is about, without any question, about to free fall into perhaps a decade-long depression? I've said it before on the podcast, and I'll say it again. Is it just that we need to accept risk in the West? Quarantine if you think you need to, and we need to let life get back to normal. But I did say this a couple of months ago to people who didn't believe me that those people who have assumed control of the reins that are holding the reins are not going to let this go easily. By their very nature, they have reached a position in life in society and politics. They have aspired to hold the reins. Now, quite what the reins might be on those terms is open to question. But definitely that's what the aspiration of politics is. And for them to just go, OK, all you go back out um, and let's move life on. I think there is a I think there is something deeper happening on a subconscious level that the people who are in charge now don't really want to give up that element of power that they've acquired. That and also the simple fact that without a vaccine, if there is a second wave, they won't get people back inside. I don't think that will be possible. And considering how potentially fractious and angry people are, this could spell some really, really difficult times ahead, as exemplified by this strange, curious bunch of people marching. I have to, who I have to observe with a, a feeling of, I suppose there's a natural inclination to view it. Uh, as co- as vaguely comedic but yet at the same time they were out on the streets um they were out on the streets uh protesting like they should they could that is their right to and every other banner or every third or fourth banner had some kernel of truth to it but then again unfortunately every other one then doesn't i mean personally uh If you're particularly religious and you want to have a banner that, say, is against abortion or something like this, okay, this is your right to gather and wave that banner around. And for particularly religious people, all right, look. But then standing side by side with somebody who's talking about 5G and then somebody else is talking about QAnon, somebody else is talking about um, a, a pedophile conspiracy in our media. I mean, look, listen, this is the country. With the Catholic Church didn't even need to have its own political party to gain access to uh, winning the paedophile Olympics. They are a strange bunch, but you have to respect their right to march through the streets no matter how comedic it might seem on the face of it. But it will be interesting to see where it goes, where they go, how these elements of seemingly diffuse protests, if they can manage to coalesce, to have some form of goal could the yellow vest concept become something a bit more universal a bit more pan-european a bit more evident across different cities this is going to be interesting as we move towards the end of the summer and into autumn and winter and perhaps we're in the same situation how will these protests grow or will they or will they see what i did there so what else happened this week well primordial had a show on the european Metal festival alliance which seemed to go down pretty well uh some people were it's curious the way people are i think some of it is just again the frustration of being in lockdown and the frustration at the situation but some people um didn't really quite grasp maybe what was happening, maybe some people deliberately don't want to understand, but some people were seemingly annoyed at us for not recording something special for the festival. But yet at the same time, it was a show that nobody had ever seen before. And it was actually from Partisan Open Air. So I think on those terms, it was pretty positive to show the festival in all its sort of glory, you know, this to show the stage, to show the size of the crowd to give people a little bit of the festival experience. Personally, and I've said it before, I'm not going to do a pretend live show where we play to an empty room. I just find the concept so infinitely depressing that I just can't even countenance it. So no, Primordial won't be doing a pretend live show where we all line up and headbang and I put on makeup to stand and look, stare down the barrel of the camera or whatever. We may do... A professionally filmed rehearsal where we can talk and be more in a human element and discuss the songs or maybe just, like I said, a rehearsal, which is allowing people a little bit more into other mechanism of the band. But a pretend live show? No, I I just can't see it. Anyway, so on those terms, um, some people sort of complained that the sound wasn't perfect. Uh, Well, of course not. It's live. It wasn't mixed. We didn't have the stem signals to mix it. Nor, of course, is there any economy in any of this in order to mix it properly. Um, so for what it was, it was direct channel, direct out. That was not exactly, of course, how it sounded for the crowd. You understand that. But for what it was, it was fine. Okay, the vocals were a bit low, blah, blah, blah. But really... I think it's like people have forgotten what it's like to be at a gig. Um, I watched a couple of the other shows and some bands, it just sounded like to me, they were playing in a room along with their album. Um, I don't personally have any interest in watching that because I want to hear the flaws and the parts that make it, imbue it with character. I don't want a completely professional experience because I just find that a bit soulless. But look, it is what it is. And so, yeah, some people didn't really... I think some people didn't really understand what it was. Now, whether the whole thing is a success or not, I don't really know. It's not really for me to say. But one thing is for sure, it definitely gave an awful lot of people um, something of a rather sad feeling because they should be right in the middle or the height of their festival season. And this is something that maybe... I think people listening in Ireland don't really know maybe, or Europe, or in in the USA don't really know, but across Europe all summer, people, you can go to a different festival every weekend, and this whole, there's something within the Central European psyche, which is, especially the German psyche, which is just about camping, and about that open space gathering, and this kind of, you could have a caravan uh, to yourself all summer of people moving from one festival to the other, um, meeting the same people. It's a sense of, it's its a sense of scene, a sense of camaraderie, and it's a sense of living that has been completely taken away from people. And it did have a sort of a bittersweet quality to watching a gig that we only played four or five years ago. Um, and considering that that's probably where we should have been right at that moment. But... For now, it is what it is. And there wasn't really anything else we could do. Um, We may do a rehearsal filmed uh, event. I don't know. It's hard to say. But I think people should have really taken the spirit of the EMFA thing in the positive nature that it was meant, Um, as opposed to cribbing that they couldn't hear the lead guitar quite enough. I get it. I get it. But all of this made me reflect on how many people that we see every summer that we catch up with. But also it made me consider the crew. I mean, I've worked on tours before. I've sold merch for bands. I've carried stuff. I've been a rather lazy roadie, among other things. And it made me think about how many crew people are out of work out there. And this is something that I just don't feel that the mainstream media is really discussing. I have seen hardly any stories about how many people within the live music industry are out of work. We hear about government stimulus packages here in Ireland, money given to the Arts Council, money given to this. And then we have a minister here who tells people within that industry that they have to... Go back to work, i.e., we have to find jobs in Aldi, find jobs in Lidl, um, along with the tens of thousands of other people who are trying to find the same jobs. Uh, to most people, at least in Ireland, I think of a certain generation, they think of the live music industry as a very parochial thing. Um, I mean, we're, we're from a small island and this often defines our politics or our view of the world, very inward looking in some cases. but. As a band, as a rock band, as a band of musicians, I have hardly heard of any people in our realm, in our section of the musical world who've had any funding from the Arts Council or have any backing from the state on those terms. Um, Like I said before, I think that the state would point to some cunt with an acoustic guitar playing Ed Sheeran's covers in the corner and go hey there's your live music that's what it is um but from what i hear from other people in other countries there is more or less support from the state but even still browsing across social media browsing across the media platforms that i open um I see very little discussion about the hundreds of thousands of people that are employed through all these things, the lighting people, the crew, the technicians, the, as I said before, the caterers, the drivers, even the dude who picks you up, uh, the poor dudes who pick you up driving a van uh, who've driven halfway across Germany to get you in the middle of the night at 8 a.m. to bring you back before whatever. And you're trusting your life in those people's hands Um to drive you safely on a motorway while everybody tries to get some shut-eye. Even those people who would have done nixers all summer, um, a nixer is like a little extra job, who would have done that are out of work. So the, the whole industry is in a really, really precarious, really, really dangerous place. And one of the things I keep coming across from people, and I keep arguing with people, and I realise it's because I know too much. I'm too immersed in it. It's like I'm, I'm immersed in the bath, just up to my nostrils, and I can still breathe. But everybody else isn't aware there's any water in the bath, so to speak. That's a strange analogy, isn't it? I would have been better if I used a, a boat letting on water as my example. But however. Anyway, you can have either. Um, And I keep coming across people. I think this is part of some element of human nature, like a defense mechanism where people train themselves, school themselves to think positively. I had dinner with a a relative who would be a generation above me who just kept to the mantra. People will always want to be entertained. People will always want live music. People will always want theater. People will always want comedy. And that's just the way it is. And they will find a way. And then, of course, I would come out with 50 complicated reasons about everything from like luggage costs to the price of oil to local venues and bars going bankrupt because they have no no gigs or no revenue for the next year and 20% capacity in yellow squares on the floor within which you have to name the people within track and trace. I mean, I literally unloaded all of four, five or six months worth of over information of being overstimulated by um, by information. And he just sat staring at me and just re- retained the same mantra. Look, it's much more simple than you're making it. And this made me really consider and wonder is it more simple than we're making it i mean obviously if it was more simple then i would have not much to talk about in my podcast and i understand that but at the same time is it more simple is it just that for example let's say let's take a country like germany a country that resisted the smoking ban even when the rest when they ostensibly their government enforced it on the whole rest of europe and ireland was first ireland was the first country where they said to them uh, you cannot smoke in pubs and slowly people just got used to it germans no this is just something that you can find in some cities and some some cities not it's got local autonomous regions just went no this is counterproductive to the economy we will refuse to do it so could it be that northern european countries maybe who are used to like i said maybe there's a broader context that i'm not seeing which is that if, for example, gigs or festivals are not allowed in this new world, then that, of course, means that there you can't have the summer festivals in a small German town, in a small Italian town. I was watching some strange documentary about this crazy Italian game with a ball where 20 men from each side play in the town square. It looks like murder ball, which is what we used to call it when we were kids. Um, And everyone gathers around and there's flags and pageantry and it. You know, it looks amazing and it's been going since the Middle Ages. All those things are gone as well. They're over. Oktoberfest is over. Um, And now the mantra was maintained by my um, elderly. I won't won't call him elderly, but older than me, relative. Perhaps I'm elderly to some of you listening. Um, He just maintained the mantra. Look, people will want this and they will crack the egg. And I have wondered, I took that on board and I've been thinking about it ever since the conversation. Perhaps I am overthinking these things. I mean, that's the nature of who I am and that's the nature of even doing a podcast. I mean, it would be a rather dull podcast if I just came on and went, hey, everything's going to be fine. But it also clued me into two things. One was which? One was, am I overthinking all of these things? Let's say about the music industry. And two... The example of recently coming across many people who have been working on themselves, as they say, the power of positive thought, and have been training themselves to block out eventualities, to block out darkness, to block out all of the things that I would see as real conversations, real thoughts, um, maybe brutally realistic, but all of the very... Self, now I would say sometimes self-evident things. The fact that some people are able to just block them out. Now, this helps, of course, if you have a nine to five, you have things going on in the evening, you have family, you have, you don't have the time to dwell on all these things. But my, my very nature is to dwell on all of them. Even if I was busy, I would spend an awful lot of time dwelling on all of these eventualities. But maybe I do that so you don't have to, so then I can depress you with my podcast. Huh? Hmm? Maybe that's my role now, huh? The opposite of a court jester, whatever that is. Court depressor, call me that. Um, but it's been very interesting to observe the machinations. I use that word in the wrong context all the time. I mean, it's been very interesting to observe how some people have been able to train themselves to just literally like block out some of these thoughts and... Just take a positive train out of the city, so to say. And this was exemplified in this conversation. It was as if um, my relative just refused, which is just like, no, people are going to get through this. They did in the 20s. They did after the first World war. They did in the Depression. And they will always want these things. Now, of course, as I said, a lot hinges on whether we have a vaccine or not. This is true. And that is a complicated question, a slightly different question than what we were discussing. But it did make me think that perhaps the situation that we're in is just perfect for gestating, for bringing to the boil all of these complex, dark thoughts, and that definitely I have a hundred thoughts rushing through um, my frontal lobe at any one time, and most of them are all of these complications when it comes to, as I said, playing live, if that's the particular topic. And an awful lot of people just have one or just have two. And that's what they roll with. Now, I don't know what they think about the rest of the time. Maybe that's because uh, however they are wired up is definitely not how I am wired up to think, um, which may place me on some spectrum or another, I'm not sure. Probably not, but possibly. However, it did get me thinking that maybe I'd been overthinking. I guess we will wait and see, but there's one thing the European Metal Festival Alliance made me feel, and that was, apart from somewhat maudlin and a little bit sad at the idea that there were all these people that we see, like I said, people that every year you you would go to the same festival and the same driver would pick you up and you'd sit in the front and have the chat and catch up about a oh man how's your family doing how's this how's that oh yeah and talk about football and some of the greatest chats you might have or with those in those situations with the crew with when you go down to get the merch at 1am and the crew are having a shot and you can do a shot with them and hang out and or go to the bar afterwards and get a bit of a lock-in or whatever and talk to the bartenders oh you know such and such played last week Um, or as I alluded to in my random chat last week you arrive in the bar in Minnesota and uh, bartenders are all dipping um, tampons in animal blood to fling it set putnam from anal cunt well you know there's a high point however however It did make me think that there are other people trying to crack this egg, so to speak, or crack this nut or whatever. And that it just might be that they won't let this situation just die. But at the same time, I have to err on the side that I think what happens will be slow adaptations. Things will move slow governments won't want to reopen in case there's a second surge I can see this with our own government as they keep pushing back the opening of social society um, till the schools are open and there was a strange moment uh, the other day a quite sad moment and sort of poignant maybe I was feeling a bit emo I don't know But I was in a pub with two friends and there was a a guy, a tourist, sitting at a table on his own behind us. And there were two sort of loud, drunk girls at another table. We are all distanced and screened. And he slowly sort of walked his chair across to try and hang out with the two girls, to try and have the chats, to try and have a bit of banter, to try and have a tiny little bit of what Dublin was always about. And that is our pub culture, our drinking culture, our social culture. And that's really what we've sold the whole world on. If you've ever culturally appropriated the Irish on St. Patrick's Day and headed out to an Irish bar and had a few beers, well, then you are a culprit of wanting some of the same Irishness in your life. And he made it about halfway across the floor, slowly edging his chair nearer and nearer and had a few chats before being quietly told by security that he had to go back to his seat, that this wasn't allowed anymore, that we come in and we sit with the people we come in with and the people you write your names on the sheet, the track and trace sheet, um, are the people that you have to stay in the company of. And our poor, our poor lonely, um, our poor lonely journeyman, journeyman had to return back to his, isolated table now like I said perhaps I was feeling a bit emo but it struck me as that's that's socializing now and it made me think about the fact that I don't think that I've spoken to for any longer than an interaction with it somebody working in a shop to somebody I don't know in about five or six months what can this do to the human psyche what can this do to people how does anybody meet anybody if you've ever read the book Love in the Age of Cholera, that sort of made me think of that. Anyway, yeah, you can call me Emo in the comments. You can DM me and call me Emo if you want. Um, actually, I didn't know what Emo stood for when I first heard the expression. I thought it was like electric music, something or other. That'll age me. And then somebody went, no, man, it's short for emotional. I was just like, wow. Anyway, what the fuck am I talking about? The point being is the truth could be both things. Again, I always, in the last couple of years, err on the side of this. And that is that the truth could be that my relative could be right. People will want to do this and they will crack the nut and they won't let these the creeping measures of authoritarianism and surveillance society curb their socializing or their living. When is the last time anybody danced with somebody they didn't know? There you go. Told you I was a poet, right? But then there is, of course, the measures of creeping authoritarianism as well. So mix them in to your palette and see what color you get. However, what am I talking about? Yeah, exactly. So maybe both points of view can be correct. Um, and I woke up with a little element of positivity which I know may sound strange if you know me, but a little element which was plucked from that conversation. And I do wonder if my relative woke up and went, maybe I should look into what track and trace and a biometric passport actually means in the real world. Hmm. Anyway. There's also something I touched on in the last podcast that I sort of wanted to expand upon. Um... And that is this mantra I keep hearing from people involved in the metal scene that what this means, what this current situation means is that we can return to the underground, return to the underground. Now I have to ask, and maybe we can expand upon it a little bit, but what does that mean? What does return to the underground mean? I have a feeling it's more of a romantic aspiration than anything really practical because the underground to me meant being 16 or meant being 18. And okay, so that's a time in your life where you had less care, less worry, all those kind of things. But what it did mean is that you had aspirations. I think you dreamt of going on tour when you looked at the back of one of those old metal hammers or one of the old Kerangs. You dreamt about going on tour, about visiting all these countries. You dreamt about releasing a record. You dreamt about standing on stages in, you know, I joined Promodia when I was 16. So you dreamt about all those things. And in the meantime, what you did is that you made fanzines, you made a demo, you wrote songs with your friends, The first band I was ever in, I was 12 or 13, and I think we tried to play like the Ramones and Bathory in the same evening or afternoon, most likely. Um, A disaster, of course, but, you know, from small acorns. Um, But the point being, I think that the concept of underground was aspiration, and now those aspirations have been somewhat neutered. And when people say to me, return to the underground, well, then if that's what you wish, then we're here. Because the underground realistically was writing letters, sending away tapes in the post, making a fanzine. You never went anywhere. You had no money. Um, There was no such thing as cheap air travel. Um, There wasn't really a touring schedule for bands like ours. Schedule is the wrong word, but... There wasn't really a touring structure. There definitely wasn't a festival structure. Back in those days, Vacan was just a small thing in the early 90s, and there was only really Dynamo, and that was it. Um, For people in the UK and Ireland, they went across to Donington. And that was your one trip per year. Um, So maybe some would say that the structure that we've had over the last 10, 20 years uh, has made us kind of spoilt with experience, I mean, personally, I don't really see it like that because I think that that was the natural process of where the underground came from. Now, maybe underground is an attitude. Maybe it's about eschewing the mainstream and not wanting to be part of mainstream rock and heavy metal culture. Um, It's about poo-pooing the the 50,000 people standing in the main stage field listening to something horrible like Amaranth or Nightwish or Battle Beast or some dreadful rubbish, but... Maybe that's not it. Maybe the fact is that your band is also there, but it's on the third stage. Maybe that's just them's the breaks in nineteen eighty eight or nineteen eighty two or nineteen ninety six. The equivalent bands still existed and your band was still on the third or fourth stage, perhaps, metaphorically. But if but if the underground is basically just writing letters and sending away cassettes and writing fanzines, then we're here. The modern fanzine is the podcast. Um, The modern cassette tape is trading files. And emails are the modern letters. So there you go. You're there. (laughs) You're back in the underground, back in the womb, back where nothing ever really happens and there's no sense of adventure. And you don't get to cross the border into another country and see other sides of life. Uh, So I think it's a very unusual uh, way of looking at things and I think it's something that say people say without thinking Um, and like I said before I kind of also refute this idea that oh this is going to be a golden period for albums of people to get creative will it or will it just force people into becoming content creators and I include music in that content creation because they have no choice and they've nothing else to do so the reality could just be hundreds more average records to pile on top of the other ever-increasing heap of average records. So, that may all sound pretty pessimistic to you, but well, here I am. That's my name. Uh, so I find it really strange when people keep commenting on oh, it's about time you return to the underground. Really? About time you just return to sitting in your room writing letters, recording C60 cassettes, and dreaming of Travelling somewhere else? Well, okay. If that's the If that's what you want, no problem. Well, it's a, it's an enforced state right now, so we haven't really got much choice. But, you know. So it got me thinking, though. What does the underground actually mean? What does that term actually mean? If it means more existentially or emotionally than just sitting in your room writing letters, what does it actually mean? Now, I was being, of course deliberately, I won't say facetious, but, you know, being a little bit of an asshole about the comments about returning to the underground. But I do hold steady to the opinion that the underground had aspirations, and those aspirations, in a sense, came true, i.e. all of the things we talk about, the scene that exists in this other climate outside of the mainstream. Um, because, let's be honest, rock and metal has no purchase, no grasp of mainstream culture anymore. So, in the sense, it did return underground, even though there's still 50,000 people in a field, or oh, many fields across the world listening to heavy metal. But the point was, what exactly does that mean? And I suppose what that meant was that there was almost like a fraternity um, to put it in highfalutin terms a fraternity a brotherhood a sisterhood a, a a relationship to being active and not passive within the music scene it was the it was being inspired to go out and make a fanzine i mean i will do a podcast about making a fanzine but there was a day in 1989 i think i went into the local heavy metal shop in dublin it was called the sound cellar that's where we all bought records back in the day and you would go in and you know, it would cost you, I mean you had to save up your pounds every other week to try and get the new vinyl of Bathory or whoever it was or Dark Angel And but you would go in and marvel at the wall of vinyls every week and the new ones that came out and there used to be hundreds of people standing around outside the record store, hundreds of thrashers, hundreds of heavy metalers in Dublin at the time and there would be there was the amusement arcade thrashers. There was people up in the green, just sitting around drinking cans, playing football. There was hundreds of people, and there was a great percentage of them were trading cassettes. They were we were I used to make homemade T-shirts for people and all sorts of stuff. And the idea was that I suppose what the underground meant was that you were active and not passive. Passive was just listening to Guns and Roses, or. Well, I suppose they weren't quite breaking at the time, it took them a while, but passive was just listening to whatever, I don't know, mainstream hard rock of the time. Being active was something different. I remember distinctly picking up a small fanzine one day, it was called Splatter, and... It inspired me to start my own fanzine. This was 1989, and I started to work on my first fanzine in 1990. It was called Sold, S-O-U-O-L-E-D. I don't really know why it was called that, but that wasn't up to me, up to the other two dudes who did it with me. And I remember at the time breaking the typewriter, trying to get it done, and writing out pages and pages and pages by hand because the typewriter was broken. And that first step issue had Thanatos malevolent creation mythic dorsal atlantica bands like this and that was i suppose being part of the underground it was being active and of course tape trading and the very first band i ever wrote to was pestilence and oddly enough um there was an address in the inside of Malleus Maleficarum, I think the album in 88 and somewhere in 89, I decided to take the plunge and write to a bunch of bands. I think I wrote to Autopsy, Immolation, Pestilence. And then about four five or six weeks later, you got a letter back, whatever inane question you asked, just like, hey, I really like your band. Can I buy a T-shirt or something like this? And you got a bunch of flyers back in the envelope and you realized, oh, there are all these other bands I can write to as well. And every time you picked up a, an album, whether it was Morbid Angel or Death or... I suppose you would look at the thanks list and you would see other bands' names and slowly you would seek them out. And then I had a tape trading list and you acquired... At one stage I was getting 20 to 30 cassettes every week. and This would be could be Paradise Lost, Frozen Illusion demo, Morbid Angel, Thy Kingdom Come, whatever. And it was just a deluge of a deluge of, I'm not going to say information, but a deluge of very real physical things, whether it was letters from people in Peru, um, Russia, or Israel, or Finland, or whatever, and you were getting cassettes, and it felt like you were actively part, you were a moving part in the process, and all I wanted to do was start a band, look for a band to join in 1991, as we all kind of were, and we used to go and sit in the rehearsal room of this band Irish band called Morphosis well they were Asphyxia at the time Morphosis and they were like the elders of our scene at the time their singer was the guy who had made this fanzine splatter and we would sit in their room and drink cans and watch them rehearse and I guess we all had dreams or aspirations of singing or playing in a band and around this was kind of like ground zero for an awful lot of people in the scene to try and start their bands or whether it was a Bad Incarnate or Crook on or Primordial or Fifth Dominion. And that, I suppose, was the essence of what being underground was. It was taking, being inspired by the spirit of the time to go and make something of it. Whether it was, as I said, a band, learning the guitar, making a fanzine, starting writing to people. And that was um that was i suppose what the term meant now i don't know what the i don't know what how that could be replicated it sounds like a very romantic nostalgic time and that's fine i'm not usually one for that but it was a very it was a great time to be part of this burgeoning black death doom metal scene the very first time you picked up cathedral forest of equilibrium and I bought the bass player's fanzine called Under the Oak, if anybody can ever track that down. It was a brilliant two-metal fanzine. But um, just you just scoured Cathedrals' thank list and wrote down all the bands, Penance, whatever, and you had to go and then try and find their demos or trade with them from somewhere. The very first time I got a Pentagram rehearsal cassette somewhere in 90, I think, or 91, and it had 1973 written on it. I just couldn't fathom that They're actually four from 1973. I'm getting a bit misty-eyed with nostalgia here, but it just got me thinking when I kept on hearing people talk about Return to the Underground, about what that meant. Is that really possible in an age where we seem to just know know too much? Because this is pre-internet. And it's pre-internet for people who obviously are too young to have grown up with out the internet. It seems like a mythical time and almost... Middle Earth sort of landscape, um, you know, populated by magical creatures. And to an element, it was. I don't think you can recreate that feeling of just, for example, um, standing, waiting for the postman to come and weighing up the options of getting the bus into school at the right time and thinking, okay, if I wait for the postman, take the stuff out of his hand, I can run at full pelt to the bus stop. I mean, we used to get off the bus two or three stops early to save 40p every day, to have three or four pounds at the weekend to buy one second-hand record. People don't realize that metal was so big that the week and after an album came out, it would be second-hand. So if you waited, you could find spiritual healing for three or four pounds the week after. Um, There's a cute story for you, huh? Who says I'm not the last of the great romantics? Um, And that's what you did. And so being underground, I suppose, was being active. And I don't think that that's a thing that can be recreated in 2020. And so when I hear people say it, it makes me feel a little bit odd that we return back to having... Maybe what it means is we return back to having aspirations to get out again. And in the meantime try and cooperate with each other but in such an interconnected world I mean just one Instagram post now reaches more people than think about it at the time you would spend hours and hours and hours writing these big long letters I used to write essay, essays to Danny from Cradle of Filth back in 92 93 essays we I would get one back and he would send me one and then we would speak on the phone um every now and again and that was you know back in the day when speaking on the phone for 20 minutes was um apparently the same cost as a mortgage on a house according to your parents but yeah this is true as an aside primordial getting signed to Cacophonous records in 93 is probably because of danny from cradle of filth who gave the demo to neil neil from cacophonus um There is a story about the making of Imrama somewhere in one of the podcasts I'll have to dig out or maybe you've listened to it already. But yeah, as an aside, you can thank Danny from Cradle for Primordial getting signed for that first record, I think, partially. However, what is the nature of Underground? What does it actually mean? And maybe I'm being too cynical by trying to snipe down or the... The conversation now around returning to that maybe I'm in too cynical a place because of the lockdown to be able to consider what that might mean to somebody who didn't grow up before the internet or maybe it's just a buzzword like everything else now that doesn't really mean very much but what did the nature of the underground mean that's what it meant I think I still show up to a city. Every now and again on a tour or somewhere, and somebody will come out and go, Hey, remember me from 1991? I, we used to tape trade. Oh, yeah, fucking Mikhail Anderson from Norshipping or whatever, or something like this. And I still remember the names. I still remember the addresses. I still remember, Oh, yeah, you sent me Sentenced uh, Journey to Poyola in 92 or whatever, or Sammy Lokapa or something like this. And the first time we played with Sentenced, it's like, Oh, yeah. We used to write to you twenty odd years ago, and I realise people love these old old stories, and it's far more maybe interesting for them to hear than me rattle on about. You know that Spotify only gives you naught point naught 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 bloody bloody bland. Yeah, fair point, fair point. Maybe I should stick to being a nostalgia machine, you know. However, for the time being, this is where we are, and if we if we call that. The spirit of the underground, which was simply having aspirations once again and believing that at some stage, um, I mean, for Primordial, the aspiration of just making a record when we first started was that was the big deal. Maybe we could make an album and be as big as Rotting Christ. Not that I'd ever seen Rotting Christ play live in 92, of course, but they were a band with an album on a vinyl that I played, that I wrote to you know in 91 or whatever and that was it you you you, that's what you wanted to be part of Um, I don't know like I said how you're just part of a digital process in the year 2020 because it seems to me like that's again the physical process of music and making music and being involved in it has been taken away from you so can we realistically really call it the underground I don't know because the underground was that thing of going into town on a Saturday, trading a tape, writing a letter. You had your band. You went to rehearsal. You saved up for some shitty guitar. You tried to write some riffs that sounded like Celtic Frost or whatever. And you made your first rehearsal tape and you were so fucking delighted that you sent it out to everybody you could. And and people listened to stuff back then. People took the time. I can tell you, Infinite amount of demos. I, sp- I must have listened to fifty to hundred to two hundred times back in nineteen ninety one. You just played them over and over again. Anyway, I'm being moved by my own nostalgia. Who knew that I still had a small, a small tiny diamond inside the coal face of my heart? Huh. Well. Anyway. Next time I'm going to do something about punk rock and about New Wave of British Heavy Metal and about those two different parallel worlds um, and at least for us when I talk about things like the underground and this this tape trading self-financed 7-inch scene, most people who don't know anything about it just assume that that's oh, well that's what death metal took from punk rock, but it's not really true it's not really true um, the fact is that if if the damn New Rose was the finger on the detonator, then New Every British Heavy Metal definitely ran with the ball. Or, I don't know, brought down Building 5 or whatever it is, you could say. There is a little conspiracy reference. All right, a rambling all over the place podcast it was. But it is what it is. So, what's the, what's the takeaway from this one? The takeaway from this one is cognitive dissonance, I think. To try and remain with some element of a positive attitude, but be aware of the consequences and all the, all the 50 to 100 items. But be able to shelve them when you can and not let them obsess you. So, until then, it's Alan Abril. This is Agitators Anonymous. Metal never bends.